Hi, this is Matt Bradley Shirky, host of Sequel Cast 2. Uh, this episode, we're going to start with a brief interview with the composer of our theme song, Mark with a C, talking about his upcoming album on vinyl, Shock Treatment Interpretations, featuring covers of the music from the movie musical Shock Treatment. And then we'll have the regular show looking at Fantasia with special guest Alexander Miller. Enjoy. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts are vast. Hello, and this is a Sequel Cast 2. We're doing a little interview here with Mark with the C. Not only has he uh, composed the themes on to the Sequel Cast, but he has done a lot of uh, great albums in his own right. You might know him from such albums as The Real Live Sound of Mark with the C, Popular Music, Share the Covers, Bitch, and uh, Half Serious, Half Kidding, which is a, a recent EP. But uh, what we have him on here today to talk about is a upcoming vinyl pressing of shock treatment interpretations mark with the c welcome to sequel cast 2 hey thanks for having me absolutely but i'm technically on every week aren't i yes that is true yes with the theme song and we uh of course give you credit on the web page and at the end of every show but yes you're here speaking new words without music in the background you're just gonna sample this and make it another theme aren't you i see what you're doing <laughs> Yes, I will interpolate. I will cut it together uh, sloppily using a garage band uh, synth guitar and, and make a secret theme song to Sequel Cast 2. You're miles ahead from half of nerd music already. Excellent. That's what I like to hear. Okay, so I learned about, um, you know, actually it's, it's funny we're talking about shock treatment because uh, we did have you as a, as a guest on the original Sequel Cast show talking about the film Shock Treatment. But um, the first way I learned of your mu music, Mark, was through these uh, shock treatment MP3s off the Rocky Music um, website, rockymusic.org. That's a surprisingly common thing that I hear. Many people discovered me through my lo-fi, really sad covers of songs from the film Shock Treatment. It's been really kind to me over the years. And I think what may have... Uh, Worked. Besides, people already, you know, if, you, if you're listening to it, you already have at least a little bit of affinity for the material, but it's absolutely honest. There's really no gussying up whatsoever. It was recorded before I even knew how to record and get any decent sort of quality out of things. I, I didn't really know much about microphone placements, so I think someone doing incredibly honest renditions when they're maybe not terribly capable, there was something in that that just worked for people. And I'll tell you, though, interestingly about the Rocky music thing, I have no recollection of them ever asking me if they could host the material. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. They, You know, I look on there, they have all sorts of, uh, like, screenplay drafts and miscellaneous. but, I mean, it was it was far enough back, I think, in the history of the Internet where I guess people don't always ask for permission anymore anyway, but I mean, that that's funny that 
you sort of learned about it secondhand, and it's like, wait, what's this site? Oh, I'm on it? Okay. Yeah, I think I learned about it while... Uh, maybe I was doing some web searches for some sites that I could alert to the existence of this, you know, what started as an EP and then every couple of years in, in its infancy, I'd add another song and then another song. I think I was looking for sites that I could tell about it. And I found that most of those sites that I could tell already had the songs. <laughs> so I was surprised. I'm like, well, you saved me a step. And I, I mean, I wasn't upset at all. It was it was meant to be shared for me, you know, on, on my end. I wasn't looking to make a buck on it. Absolutely. So um, shock treatment, I, it's one of those things that took forever to come out on DVD. And now we're getting a Blu-ray re release, but it looks like in the UK only, the shock treatment Cosmo limited edition. That is my understanding that it's that it's a UK only release. But have you seen the uh, artwork for it? I have. It looks like they've done a bang-up job, and there's a lot of really cool components. Doesn't it? Yeah, it looks like a combination of special features from the original release, such as the audio commentary by the Shock Treatment fan club presidents Madman Mike and Bill Brennan, but uh, it looks like also some uh, new stuff on there as well, and newly commissioned uh, artwork on the packaging, which looks real slick. Um, and a exclusive Shock Treatment mix-and-match cards, whatever that means. Yeah, uh, I've seen pictures of that, and basically it looks like you've got the top half of an illustration of a character from the film, and then the bottom half, and you can sort of make, okay, I'm going to have the uh, the top of Nurse Ansalong with Bert Schnick's lower half. like It's kind of like that. It's a, like a little toy. I see. So you can have whomever you want wear the little black dress. Precisely. Perfect. Um, so I'm, I'm looking here shock treatment what what do you think is about this movie that makes people um keep on talking about it and you said you have people contacting you about the songs and that it's where they first heard of you i mean what do you think makes this movie that that frankly is a odd i mean i guess technically it is a sequel to rocky horror but it's very much its own thing what makes this movie last throughout the years why do people keep talking about it because we're conditioned to believe that it's terrible Every mm. writing about it that has lasted through the years just beats it into your face that this is not good. I mean, Richard O'Brien himself calls the film an abortion, uses those exact words. Wow. It's an abortion. You're So when you watch it and you relate to it in any way and see just how soothsaying it was, how much it predicted the future, um, it, for better and for worse in a lot of cases when you relate to it you almost feel like it's wrong it's dirty it's taboo to find pleasure in this film and i think it makes for a relationship where you feel like you're the only person who gets it on that level and it becomes a very personal love where rocky horror is more of a communal love you can go to a theater every weekend or so if you find the right places and you can watch it with a bunch of like-minded people who are all going to yell the same things it's kind of like a sporting event for film sure shock treatment is only going to exist when you press play the um you know i think the uh, the music in Rocky Horror Picture Show is perhaps more catchy, but I think the lyrics in Shock Treatment are more clever in a way. It sort of reminds me of like a Stephen Sondheim musical in that you have to work to really pick up the lyrics and understand what's going on. And But once you... It, it's, it's a real either love it or hate it thing. Nobody just kind of likes Shock Treatment. 
I'd say that's that's perfectly accurate. There's no real halfway with shock treatment, but musically, I believe from a compositional standpoint, the music of shock treatment is heads and tails above Rocky Horror. I think while you've got some bona fide hit song material like Time Warp or Sweet Transvestite, mm. musically those were kind of written on time-tested tropes and chord changes where shock treatment really could have stood alone as a honestly a new wave album if just one voice was on it and you didn't change anything about it musically it would have been very much of its time and uh, a great piece on its own it didn't need anything visual i think the music stands up on its own where much of rocky simply does not i love breaking out i think might might be my favorite track off of shock treatment yeah, that one uh, could have been a big hit single in an alternate universe. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure why they, why they didn't push it. I mean, I guess that Shock Treatment, the title track, which is the, the one that they earmarked for single release, good tie-in because it's got the name of the movie in it and everything, but also the movie itself doesn't actually have any real Shock Treatment. It's sort of like sure. Star Wars. We, we had to wait till Rogue One till we saw an actual Star War. So that, that's kind of troubling, but breaking out, I think probably would have been the most catchy tune for the radio and a little bit edgy for the time. I think so. That's a, that's a good point. Um, so with uh, Shock Treatment, what inspired you to um, do a limited uh, pressing that uh, looks like it'll ship on or around November 29th, 2017, a limited edition of 240, and people can, as of this recording, uh, Purchase a copy for a reasonable price from markwiththec.com. Uh, I'll try to make this as short as I can. In early June, I was in Canada recording my next album of original material, and someone from the Shock Treatment Network contacted me to ask if they could use some of uh, my Shock Treatment covers on the Blu-ray. Huh. And, of course, I said, absolutely. Yeah. And... Uh, then I was asked to take part in an NDA where I couldn't speak about that for uh, until a certain date. And uh, then there was never an official announcement about it, so I just continued to keep my mouth shut. I ran across something where Shock Treatment Network said one of the bonus, uh, bonus features was going to be my covers of Dual Duet and Shock Treatment. So I went, okay, I'm not getting paid for this. But, you know, maybe I can have my own shock treatment uh, material out there. And again, I'm not really making much of anything off this vinyl pressing. It's definitely done for the love. But I went, as a tie-in, there will simply never be a better time mm. to put these on vinyl. There's never going to be a point where this is not a crass cash in otherwise i'd have to wait for an anniversary <laughs> or potentially a death so that those would be disgusting to do instead i went it, it's going to happen now or it's not going to happen at all but i had to rush i, I mean it was so quick i had to get my in-house artist uh that catherine on the line like okay look this might happen if it does we're going to need the artwork yesterday and between when i shared the announcement that the Shock Treatment Network had said, hey, Mark of the Sea is going to do these bonus features. There was also a retraction a couple of hours later where they also said, by the way, we don't know precisely which of the like 20 bonus features we announced are actually
officially going to be on it. Mm. So I still have no official word, and I won't know until <laughs> probably the Blu-ray is in my hands. Well, and then do you have a Region 2 or Region 3 player that can play it? I do. Okay, great. So, yeah, I, I likely won't know. Uh, so initially it was... These are going to be out there if someone stumbles upon those bonus features and likes it and wants to have it. So I thought it would be nice to go ahead and do a fully licensed version of it, which was difficult. And one day when I write my uh, autobiography, I will tell the story of the very creative way that I had to license these songs. Right. license Music licensing is something that doesn't really get talked about. I, I only took a a course of, of music in college so I, I don't know very much but it's far more um complicated and can be more time consuming also than people think even you know finding out who has the rights who to get in contact with that's true and uh just suffice it to say to skip all the boring parts i have licenses for all 12 songs I mean, I have them, they're paid for, I can show proof of them if needed. But once you look on those licenses and see exactly how things are worded, you're going to go, you know, this is only a legal loophole. This is, <laughs> like, you you are so lucky that this exists in this way. So it came very close to not happening at all. But um, So it's either a tie-in to the Blu-ray, which I may be on, or it's just something for those folks who discovered me through the shock treatment songs and have a soft spot in their heart for it. I haven't really changed anything on it. Uh, there's a couple of things that you have to do for vinyl, like, for example, frequencies under a certain amount of EQ, like the some of the bassier frequencies have to be in mono. So hmm. I did have to make a very slight sound change, but I didn't go through and say, like, oh, that's a bum note, I'm going to fix it, because I those multi-track masters are long gone. Uh, the only way I could really change anything would be to re-record them and i've come such a long way in my abilities and my equipment since then that don't think for a second i wasn't tempted to do these with uh better sonics and mm. getting all the words right yeah <laughs> because that's my biggest regret on it i screwed up so many lyrics because i didn't have the lyrics in front of me when i recorded these ah uh, it's Oh, and it's even in the first couple of lines in Denton, <laughs> USA. Instead of innocence, I say thankfulness, and I had no idea what was being said in the second verse of Lullaby, so I just mumbled it. And you can hear me layering my voice where I'm always mumbling a different thing. I would go back and fix all of that, and you'd better thank your lucky stars, if you like it, that I don't have the multitracks because I would have George Lucas the shit out of it. I like that George Lucas is not just a noun, it's a verb. Absolutely, I use it all the time. Great. Um, you know, it's funny, Jessica Harper does such a great job in this, and recently I watched her in the um, another 80s musical, Pennies from Heaven. Have I've you... never seen that. Oh, have you never seen it? It's, um, I'd, recommend, it's, I'd recommend it. It's like a, an American movie of a BBC series starring Steve Martin, Bernadette Peters, and... Um, Jessica Harper, set in the Depression in the Midwest, I think. And, well, it sounds right up my alley. I mean, right. I love all and three it, of them. And, it's, and the gimmick with the musical is when people sing, it's not them actually singing until the very, and I think until like the last number. Instead, they lip sync to original 1930s um, period songs. 
performed by the original artists. Oh, interesting. You know, so it's sort of like the musical take on what they did visually with Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. That's right. Cool. That's up my alley. Thanks for the recommendation. Absolutely. Um, so as we're finishing up here, my co-host, uh, Thrasher, had, had a question for you. Uh, and his uh, these two questions are... Uh, one uh, is... Briefs. Yeah. Briefs. You don't even have to um, ask. Okay. Please. Well, that, that takes care of the first question. The second question is, um, what was your favorite song to perform? You mentioned it took you uh, off this album, I mean. Because you mentioned it took you several years to record these, and you were sort of figuring out the recording process as you went. Is there one where after you recorded it and you sort of felt like you had nailed it? Dual duet. And I didn't feel that way at the time. I felt it was too slow and too lurching, but I couldn't come up with a better way to attack it. And now I wouldn't touch a hair on its head. I, and I couldn't do it better. There's, yeah, there's simply no other way I could have done that. Now, as far as, uh, as far as actual performances, like, like say live. I'm performing yeah. it live, the right. most fun one to do live is bitching in the kitchen. <laughs> and, it's really fun when you've got someone near the front who knows all the words because sometimes it gets difficult to remember the order of the products. So you, I'm kind of looking at them and they're looking at me like which one of us is going to get it right and you know, hoping we can read each other's lips. That one's a lot of fun to sing along to. Denton USA I thought would become a fun live one but uh the last time we did it was around 2014 and uh, didn't seem to have much recognition there it's either there's a couple of people that are 100 percent shock treatment in the crowd or it's just crickets but the worst venue believe it or not <laughs> that i've ever performed shock treatment songs at has been a regular night opening for the Rocky Horror Picture Show because I go out all guns blazing like, yeah, sing along, everybody. And then I jump into, I don't know, say, breaking out. And it's uh -huh. just, that that's very nice, Mark. Uh, what are you doing? My own material gets better reception. Weird. At those shows, there's just no recognition from younger folks coming to see Rocky Horror. It, it just hasn't translated. I think what the film needs is much like that much ballyhooed revamp that they did for Fox. I, I believe that shock treatment could actually benefit from having that sort of thing. And it might mm -hmm. be so on the nose now that people would watch it and go, yeah, tell us something we don't know. Yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it, to have a, some younger people watch shock treatment and sort of get their, their thoughts on it. Um, I thought the Fox Rocky Horror was okay. I, I don't know why they needed to go with the conceit of people in a movie theater watching it that seems to make it be like okay they're just watching a movie why should i care um but i and i i liked the the mask that frankenfurter wore when she was revealed um but yeah i don't know it's some things you you shouldn't remake and they've been talking about that for years uh, it was nice to see tim curry in something again haven't seen it have no plans to see it um However, if people were positively affected by it, I have absolutely no issues with it existing. It's not my work that they went and changed, so who am I to complain? Right, I like the argument Stephen King made in the interview. They said, well, Stephen, you know, what do you think of all these shitty movies people make your book? 
And he points to his bookshelf where he has all the novels that he's written. He says, my books still exist right there. If they want to go to the original, they can go to the bookstore and get it. Are we doing like a candid camera thing right now I, I where so, your dogs yeah. flip I'm being, out I'm and you wait? by by dogs ripped to pieces. Uh, and so I think... Yeah, I'm, you I'm, wait to see if I'm going to react or not. Is that what we're doing? Sure, the dogs are barking in a secret Morse code message that listeners will only get um, if they're true fans. So, <laughs> stay tuned. So, on, on that note, you know, Mark, uh, thanks so much for your time to, to talk about your album shock treatment interpretations. Uh, listeners can purchase it at markwithac.com. And um, when is your new... Um, your, you said you recorded a new album, you know, and that's also going to come out of your original music? Well, since we had to put it on hold because there was the 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 infamous call that I received in Canada, um, it looked like, well, there we have to leave the fall open just in case I have to do shock treatment promotion, and that's precisely what's happened. So, unfortunately, the new album of original material is not going to come out until early next year at, at the earliest the good news is that it's a bit of a trilogy. There's a, first the album Unicorns Get More Bacon, then the EP Half Kidding, Half Serious, or Half Serious, Half Kidding, depending on which side you play first. And uh, that's going to lead you right into the next album, which I'm not telling you the name of. And um, so you can prep yourself already with the first two parts of the trilogy, and you might find when, when uh, things are revealed that it might not just be a trilogy it might actually go further back the, the story may begin much earlier than I'm letting on I see, you know, one thing I'll, I'll bet is it's not titled The Shocky Treatment Horror Show um, Well, I don't know um, how much money do you want to put on that because it's not <laughs> out yet, I can still make that happen well, we'll talk off mic but, um, All right. Mark, Mark with a C, thank you so much for uh, coming on where can people follow you on Twitter? I'm at Mark Fi. That's M A R C F I, as in Lo Fi, Mid Fi, Hi Fi, and Mark Fi. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you, Matt. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2. This is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. This time around, we are looking at the Walt Disney animated feature, uh, Fantasia, which was a gigantic flop upon release. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. Hello, listeners. Welcome to our concert. That is my very, very poor Leopold Stokowski impression. Thank you very much. <laughs> And uh, with us, we have a very special guest. Not only is he a fan of the show, you might recall him as a guest in our finale of the original sequel cast series, but he is a, uh, a, a critic, a film critic, a film writer for such sites as Battleship Pretension, and I can't remember the other ones, Alex Miller. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for that loving intro. Yeah. Um, I can tell it's early in the morning on my end. Um, what, what other sites are you currently writing for? Uh, for Talk Film Society, Film Inquiry, and, um, and Battleship Retention, yeah. Um, I don't think I'm as familiar with your Film Inquiry pieces. What sort of things do you do with them? Well, I started off with them doing, um, occasional reviews and 
when uh, a few years ago I was doing like a lot of like list heavy stuff like um yeah 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 which is which is always fun but you know the editor wanted it to didn't want to turn into kind of like a buzzfeed what culture type site but um I would try and kind of come up with concepts like uh doing the best picture nominees and winners versus like what was won over the years and what we actually remember oh like, you know yeah sure talking about you know Saving Private Ryan instead of uh, Shakespeare in Love or Ordinary People or something like that over the years. So it wasn't so much what like a snub list. It was more of like what's more fluent in the public consciousness than what had won that year. Right. I mean, people, you know, famously will rag on uncertain things like Crash, right? Is a, right. a, a film people that won a lot that people might not remember necessarily. Or... Um, you know, one one independent film I thought was really overlooked, I think it might have won for Best Screenplay, was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, yeah, that's another huge one. Um, and then there's all those, like, famous snubs over the years where people give, uh, you know, John Ford's uh, How Green Was My Valley a hard time because that was the year Citizen Kane lost. But How Green Was My Valley is just an incredible film. And even Wells himself was a huge, huge um, John Ford fan. So it's just, it's funny the way history kind of dictates what we remember and, and what we don't, you know, because of what's when going you, on. Right. When you mention films that are robbed, I, the first quote that comes to mind is a Spike Lee saying Malcolm X was robbed. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was uh, not, um, you know, Spike Lee, I think, is a great film director, but he's also not afraid to voice his opinion. He's <laughs> so. No reason. <laughs> Oh, Thrasher, I don't, um, are there any sort of, like, films that have been nominated for Oscars that you thought weren't as good as people thought, or, you know, sort of, or what's your sort of feeling on the, the Oscars in general? I mean, that, that's inevitable. I, I guess the, the problem, the, I guess the thing that always sort of sticks with me about Oscars is that, um, Beauty and the Beast wins an, wins an Oscar, and to prevent that, and they create a new category to, to prevent that from ever happening again. It did not win Best Picture, though, did it? It was nominated. Oh, you're right. No, I, you know, I need, I need to, I need to dig into this, but I, I feel like there's a lot of needless segregation to keep certain types of mm. films from from being real contenders for Best Picture, and and the you know that Best Animated Film category is one of them. Uh, I I can see why they separated animated film. I know that that implies that it's not as good as a regular film, but I would almost be in favor of doing a separate category for best comedy film, because comedies get screwed so often in the Oscars, and I would say it's I could see that. I would say it's arguably harder to make a comedy than a, a drama. Um, and, I mean, movie-making period is hard, don't get me wrong. I, you know, my, my student films that did in college, as you know, Thrasher, I should, I should really put them on YouTube, um, were disastrous. I'm... Like, it's... Do the same with mine. Right. Uh, Alex, do you have any experience doing short films? Um, I starred in this one, um, I guess you could call it like a promotional short. It was called um, Taste, and um, I play this kind of like weird pariah who's obsessed with this guy while he's like obsessed with like tastes and smells and stuff like that. Um, it was based on this book by Daisy Rockwell. And it was shot by Carl Sprague. He's um, he does set design for Wes Anderson and his brother Kevin. And um, it was just this like little, you know, it was basically like a concept pitch, you know, of like, hey, this is what this, you know, story could be. 
um, which was a fun thing. It was very easy. You know, I just kind of walked around and looked funny and made scary faces and did some voiceover afterward. Um, aside from that, though, not much else. I mean, I always thought the short category nomination was a fascinating little area because that was always like, you know, when people go to the bathroom <laughs> during the awards. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to review the the short animated nominees last year for uh, Battleship Protection and... What a fascinating little category. Yeah, um, I would say about, you know, when I was in college, maybe 12 years ago, I was visiting family in D.C., and we went to a local theater that was uh, playing the Oscar-nominated live-action shorts and the animated shorts. And um, it's really fat. There are these movies that otherwise people never would get a chance to see. Um, and, I mean, they weren't all good, but they were all... Uh, interesting, and, and uh, my aunts and uncles and myself had a pretty lively discussion afterwards about what we liked, what we didn't. Um, yeah, it's now. Now, how many of those people that win those Oscars move on to direct? Uh, you know, like Iron Man twenty seven. I I don't really know, <laughs> but it, it certainly it's a it's an important category that that gets overlooked. But let, let's uh, speaking of overlooked films, let's uh, talk about our main feature here, Fantasia, released in nineteen forty. Directed by Samuel Armstrong, James Algar, Bill Roberts, Paul Satterfield, Penn Sh- Ben Sharpstein, David D. Hand, Hamilton Lusky, Jim Hanley, Ford Beebe, T. He, Norman Ferguson, and Wilford Jackson. Produced by Walt Disney and Ben Sharpstein. Based off a story, and how could this get a story credit? That's kind of dumb. By Joe Grant and Dick <laughs> Hoomer. Um, starring Leopold Stokowski and Deems Taylor. Music by the Philadelphia Orchestra. With cinematography by James Wan Howe. Um, this had various run times. The, the one that's quoted on Wikipedia, which I think is the roadshow version is 126 minutes and, um, off a, this budget and box office figures are a bit misleading, but, uh, the budget was 2.28 million, which in 1948 or 1940, of course, was a lot more than it is now. And, uh, over the, the millions of re-releases, it's made around like a, a little bit over $80 million. But I, I do want to point out, and we'll get to this when we talk about uh, production of the film, this movie was a big flop, and it took decades and decades for them to get money back. Um, oh, yeah. Like, th- this movie was... So this movie came out after Pinocchio, but before Dumbo. This movie is the reason why when you watch Dumbo, it opens with an RKO Pictures logo and not a Disney logo. Wow. Oh, that I did not know. That's fascinating. Yeah, Dis- Disney was not able to distribute its own film or finish the animation on Dumbo so RKO pitched in a little money and released it through its own distribution network. So that's why Dumbo is the only Disney animated film you'll see with another company's logo on it. I did not know that. Uh, you know, it is like Fantasia was sort of Walt Disney's dream project. It's sort of like the, the height of, you know, the most artsy idea for a cartoon you can possibly think of. And it is... Um, you know, it, it really over the years when when they finally released it on home video, uh, both uh, both the videotape and the accompanying uh, soundtrack album sold out immediately, and they had to rush out new printings of it. So I mean, over the years, people I think have appreciated it more. Um, that being said, and we'll talk about this in next week's episode when Fantasia 2000 came out, audiences weren't especially interested, and it also kind of uh, took it in the shorts uh, financially. Um, and, and I mean, financially, that's not the only important thing, of course, but it's, um, before we talk more in, in about Fantasia, 
Uh, Alex, when was the first time you've ever seen Fantasia? Fantasia was one of those, you know, movies we had in the house as a kid. Uh, oh, so I felt like, like the big clamshell VHS things that yeah, Disney had? Yeah. Oh, I felt great. like everyone yeah. had one, yeah. It was, it was great. So, yeah, we watched it all the time. Um, I'm assuming we've had it around since I was a youngin. You know, when Disney would do the, uh, you know, the, the vault is open, huh. limited time VHS <laughs> no, they're, 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 they're the... The number one mad geniuses of that. It's uh, so aggravating. Right. I, I used to work at a, a movie stop, which I think there's a few of them still around, but it's a, a, a used movie store owned by the same guys that run GameStop, of all people, and you only see them in the South. Um, maybe they're out of business. That, that could be the case by now. But regardless, the Disney stuff was always um, some of our best sellers because of the vault. Uh, in particular, Snow White is always like mm-hmm. the first one they come out with on a new video format. And then they, mm. they pull it really quickly to make it higher in demand. Yeah. Yeah, hey, it worked because we had all those VHS tapes growing up. So, mission accomplished on the end. But was Fantasia <laughs> one that your, um, did, did your family like it? Is there one of the Disney's uh, Disney features that your family would watch more than the others? You know, I think Fantasia was one of the more popular ones because I think even at a very young age, we were very cynical and... Hmm. We're uh, very conscious about, you know, um, over-sentimental kind of movies, and that's, you know, Disney in a nutshell, I guess you could say. So Fantasia was always kind of the more, um, I guess, less uh, less sentimental, less, um, you know, narratively based of the movies there. And it was also just a big visual feast, so it was always easy sure. to just kind of pop in and out. Um, Thrasher, what about you? So Fantasia... It- I, the first time, as far as I know, that I saw Fantasia all the way through was uh, when it was re-released in uh, 1990 uh, with a with a theatrical run. Although I've seen it in theaters several times, we're very fortunate that we oh, had wow. this, an art an art house theater, the Narrow, that would like whenever it could, it would try to get it, it tries to get classic pictures in, and so it they I believe they they ran. Uh, they ran Fantasia like uh, several times, like every three years they managed to get Fantasia in. And I always would go to see it back when I lived in Norfolk, Virginia. But Fantasia is something that I was kind of saturated with because in the early days of cable like and the Disney Channel, Hmm. Clips from Fantasia were always being repurposed in things. If you remember DTV, there were several DTV segments uh, that were made out of re-edited clips from Fantasia. And very often you'd see segments from Fantasia in isolation. I know I saw The Sorcerer's Apprentice on a VHS, or actually possibly even a Betamax tape of Mickey Mouse cartoons before I ever saw the full film. Uh, But I, I am just in love with this movie. Wow, um... Yeah, for me, I we never owned it on videotape, and um, we never had friends that owned it. I, I think I mentioned this in the show before, but I, I lived overseas when I was younger, and uh, we sort of, in Latin America, and we sort of had whatever videotapes we had, uh, which wasn't very much. And um, Fantasia, I think I must have seen all the way through um, on one of the re-releases on video when I was going through... A, a sort of a Disney animated feature phase, watching them all, and uh, it 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 really is something that I like more as I get older. It this is a film that, uh, among other things, requires a lot of patience. Uh, I'm not sure if modern audiences would stand for 
a um, a two-hour cartoon with pretty much no dialogue, and th that's a very abstract um, with its segments. Yeah, that's something I found interesting because, like, I'm surprised it wasn't more popular or is more popular now, given, like, you know, just... I think that's why it flew over so well as a kid, because of the short attention span factor. So if you didn't like a certain segment, it would be over in a few minutes, and then you could just move on to the next thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, I guess this, you could... Uh, uh, this might be a stretch, but, you know, it kind of prefigures the, you know, music video, whereas this yes, is yeah, kind of right. one of the... Yeah, we were actually animating something and, and making a motion picture to for the straight purpose of syncing up with music. And I've, I have had this confirmed for me by certain relatives of mine. But it, so, so Fantasia was re-released into theaters in 1969. <laughs> and that's, that's when it started to really, that's when it started to turn a profit. That's when it really started to be a success and started getting recognition. And a big part of that is because a lot of people in the audiences were taking drugs. Well, and, and, and Disney marketed it as the ultimate trip. I, I mean, which is a very smart repurposing of... What could be considered an artsy-fartsy film. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, there, there are multiple ways to appreciate this film, and that is certainly one of them. But I just, I just find it interesting that connecting with the counterculture was really <laughs> how this film found its legs. Ironically, a film released by a gigantic corporation. Um, oh, yeah. Well, that point, certainly. Well, I mean, like, what, what's the joke in The Simpsons? Fruitopia, it's like... Fruit oh juice. yeah, the iced tea brewed yeah. by hippies, but sold by a faceless multinational conglomerate. <laughs> well, well, that is interesting because you know you you look at this, and this really is a very high concept, very artful film that's all based around taking taking classical music, which is at the height of its form, and combining it with animation and lifting that animation up to the height of its form. And I think it is a shame that the movie didn't become a success early on because. Aside from Fantasia 2000, Disney never never went back to this. I'm not sure there's any Disney film that's as ambitious as Fantasia. Um, isn't there one called Merry Melodies? That's I mean, it, it's yes, it's not as arty as as imaginative as Fantasia, but it's it's somewhat a similar concept. Well, well I mean, there's there's there there's many things that Disney did linking animation in music, but like the the melody the, time. The Mary, excuse me. Silly, Oh, the Melody Times, you said? Yes. I don't think I'm not. Don't think I've ever seen that. Now that I think about it. it hmm. Well, never mind. I stand corrected. Some of them are, are musical segments, and it has uh, shorts like Legend of Johnny Appleseed, which they repurpose. Oh, oh no, that's and, just and, yeah, and Pecos, Bill. Pecos Bill. No, that's that's just a collection of, of cartoon shorts. There okay, really is I, nothing. I stand corrected. I um, I believe I read um, somewhere. This might be an alternative fact. I don't. Whatever. I'm talking about a biography I read 20 years ago. Uh, I think uh, one of the original concepts for Fantasia is um, it would always be in theaters, and as the Disney animators would make new segments, they'd take old stuff out, throw new stuff in, kind of constantly remix it, which I think is a fascinating concept. Uh, you, and you I wish that had happened. Right. You, you mentioned, Alex, uh, this kind of prefaces the the music video. I also think, in a way, this is sort of like uh, predates YouTube, right? And yeah, how YouTube, just... everything is short content. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could probably watch Fantasia in its entirety by looking up the clips through YouTube search. Or <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, <laughs> but I have to, uh, when you touched on the the psychedelic, the groovy thing, I have to I have to tell this little story. So when I was at like a 
party, what have you, or, or a get-together with some friends. There was this kid we didn't really know from out of town, and he was all fired up, you know, talking about this and that and the other. And somebody mentioned, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, the uh, Dark Side of the Moon Wizard of Oz thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've seen that. I did that in college, yeah. yeah. And he was talking about that, and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. This is even better. Get this, right? Right? <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Smashing Pumpkin Siamese Dream pairs with Asia to a T, like to the letter he said, like up and down. Blue dark side of the rainbow out of the water. So, of course, the first thing I do the following day is, is wake up and grab the clamshell VHS. <laughs> started up beside me stream, and I'm like, wow, this is kind of cool, huh? And then after a while, I started thinking, I realized that Fantasia is a, more or less a musical. It's set to music. So no matter what you have on, you get a system of a down Bach or, <laughs> you know, Brian Eno, and it's yeah. going to pair up one way or another. Yeah, as uh, long as there's a rhythm and a beat, there's going to be a lot of synchronicity. Exactly. So this big revelation that I, I, I thought was uh, going to be huge and profound ended up being kind of just a goofy coincidence. I, you're getting me thinking. I wonder if anyone has tried to do a Fantasia fan edit. I'm surprised it hasn't been more prevalent. There might be. I might look at the internet fan edit database. Um, but, you know, let's let's talk about the, the feature... In, in the segments in order, I assume we have the Wikipedia page uh, pulled up. Oh, I've, got, I've got lots of pre-search. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you have the link, Alex? It has the... Uh, uh, near the top, it has program. This is Listeners love these parts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's how the sausage gets made. Keep behind the curtain. Yep. Uh, okay, great. Um, so, uh, I have to say, I really enjoy uh, Deems Taylor as the master of ceremonies. He, the way he speaks is very intelligent, and he, he, I, I love how he describes, because uh, he, he's, even though this was way back in 1940, he's trying to sell audiences on classical music, which is a very, very old form of music, hundreds and hundreds of years old, right? And he's like, so it doesn't have lyrics, doesn't have this, but, you know, if you close your mind and imagine what's happening, you might even see colors, you might even... Um, you might imagine a story is going on. This is kind of like what we've had. You know, it's, he's giving a mission statement for Fantasia. I I am going to have to disagree with you to an extent. Okay. Um, jo- Joseph Deems Taylor, uh, he, he was a, a music critic, a composer in his own right. Uh, he was a big advocate for classical music. He He's a person that is clearly both very knowledgeable and very passionate on this subject. And, and yet... I find that he he's somewhat stiff and awkward in front of the camera, and mm. he tries way too hard to sell us on what we're about to see. Um, he also over-explains a number of segments. And we've, we've already bought our tickets. You don't have to convince us that we should want to see this. We've already <laughs> made that choice. You should, be, you should be getting us excited for what we're about to see. And it, it doesn't quite work. Although that being said, I love the way he interacts with the soundtrack during the soundtrack segment. It does make me wonder uh, if Walt Disney ever considered having himself on stage. I mean, granted, this is way before Wonderful World of Disney and all that, but... I always kind of remembered that he was, or I had thought that he was, okay, maybe my memory projected him there, but when I went back to watch it this time around in preparation for this episode, I kind of thought that he would be in the interludes with James Taylor, and he wasn't at all, which surprised me, even though I... Mm. Mickey was there. Um, I think he's. I think he's fine. I think he dates it a little bit when he's talking about the dinosaur sequence, especially. You know. Oh, oh, sure. 
Uh, you know, those little rascals, those Tyrannosaurus rests, you know. This extremely accurate yeah. depiction of the uh, creation of the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there, there, there's, a, there's sort of a, a, an old school academic stiffness to him. I, I feel that's he's, a, he's the yeah. He's the college professor that a young graduate student takes to a sock hop and he learns to loosen up. If this if this were like a comedy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, can you imagine if they had... They do this a bit in Fantasia 2000, which we'll talk about next week, but what if they had, like, comedians from, like, the, the 30s? Like George Burns introducing bits? I mean, that... We're going to see Mickey, and he's going to cast the spell or something. Here we go. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm Mickey Mouse. Look, look, look at all the... Uh... The uh, the fascist diamond is on the screen. Whoa! Wait, what? Mouse. <laughs> there was criticism at the oh, time oh, that the film was. <laughs> <laughs> there was criticism at the time that the film was fascist, and in fact, uh, one I found this piece of trivia fascinating. One critic, let um, I me mean, looking up the quote here, was so disgusted. Uh, here it is from the New York uh, Dorothy Thompson of the New York Herald Tribune from November 1940. Um, left the theater in a condition bordering on nervous breakdown and um, thought the film was an abuse of power, a perverted betrayal of the best instincts. And uh, she thought the... Uh, she was so distraught she walked out before the end of the film and thought it depicted a negative caricature of the decline of the West. Yeesh. Really? I want to see <laughs> that whole review. I can't, um, I can't find it. Granted, I didn't look for it beyond a... a citation in wikipedia but i think I that know, what segment was she in the middle of when she walked out um good uh let me you know it does mention that in this quote um she walked out before she saw the last two segments so i think are some of the best in the film um oh she left during pastoral symphony then uh correct yes huh I always love finding out why things were banned in the past, or like, you yeah, know, you find yeah. out like Wizard of Oz was banned in the Soviet Union because it promotes sorcery and really? okay. extremist. You know what I mean? <laughs> that. I mean, not that specific. I just made that up, but you know, um, if there's a, a movie about a farmer or something, you know, it, it was banned in you know socialist countries or something because you know it, it condemns the proletariat workforce or something like that, which. I always find fascinating because it's something our Western, you know, our context would not pick up on at all. Well, before we march through the film, I, I do want to touch on uh, how this has been censored and how there's some different oh, yes. versions of it, right? I did not know that. Thrasher, you want to talk about this? Well, the, I, I, the, I think the one that you're, you're alluding to is during the Pastoral Symphony, there's yep. a character that was cut in re-releases. So, so in the Pastoral Symphony, in, in the cup that's available, when the god Dionysus approaches, there are two uh, African centaurs that are, that are at his side, or there's cup bearers, and they have, they have zebra features and these tall African hairstyles. Well, in the original version of this segment, there was a there was a there was an African centaur that was much less dignified. She had this kind of awkward donkey body, and and 
like and, and like she has like Topsy's hair from Uncle Tom's Cabin, this really messed up, disheveled uh, uh, hairstyle, and and it speaks it speaks to a lot of a lot of uh, racist caricature that that regrettably appeared in a lot of animation and comics at the time. Also, one of the centaurs was polishing the hooves of a white. One of the black centaurs was polishing the hooves of a white centaur. Uh. Oh no, that I didn't know. And, I mean, it, it, it's a sequence where if you don't know you're looking for it, it's almost blink and you miss it. It's not like the, the camera really lingers on it. Um, and I think the edit is tastefully done. Uh, you know, noted film critic Roger Ebert thought, uh, while the original film, of course, should be preserved for historical purposes, there is no need for the general release version to perpetrate racist stereotypes in a film designed primarily for children. Um I kind of disagree. I sort of wish, like, the original version, you know, you had more than one version on the disc. I It, it, it makes me think of how, you know, Sod of the South was never released on a DVD or, or Blu-ray, um, even though they had produced a behind-the-scenes feature on it. And, I mean, yes, Sod of the South is racist. This sequence deleted from Fantasia is racist. I'm not defending that the content is racist, but you shouldn't pretend that it didn't exist. And, it, it, and historically... It, it should be out there for um, film historians, uh, television historians, uh, social historians, if nothing else. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and that was something that was on uh, that was on my mind because you know I I re I rewatched Fantasia you know every 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 year or so, and this this was the first time that I watched it with that in mind because I knew we were going to discuss it on the show, and I was trying to see well is. Is the absence of those characters, am I going to notice gaps? Am I going to notice, like, well, clearly they just cut around something. And interestingly enough, I didn't. If I, if I didn't know that content existed, I would never know that something was missing from the segment. Hmm. That's interesting, too, because, like, in watching Fantasia this time around, too, this might sound a little terrible, but I was thinking, I was like, hmm, this is a lot less racist than most early <laughs> Oh, that's a great point. Um, I was almost kind of waiting for it, you know. Like I remember we were watching Dumbo a couple of years ago, and that scene where the the, the laborers are putting up, and yeah, it's brutal. Mm -hmm. um, that too, yeah. And you know, there's other obvious ones, but yeah. Um, I, I was watching. I was like, wow, there's really no cloaked racism here. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised. I, I have to say, rewatching the Fantasia for this uh, for sequel cast too. Um, I was I really really enjoyed the first segment where it just uses uh, Takata and Fugue in D minor by Bach. It's, it's these really beautiful, super abstract shots of clouds and shapes, and it's all timed to the music. And, uh, and and even then, they're constantly playing around with bits of musical iconography when those abstract shapes that are meant to represent violin and cello uh, bowstrings like fly fly through the air i guess swim through the air if, if fish could if fish could fly or, or birds could swim that's kind of the way i would describe their motion or when the strings of the cello kind of swoop through the frame and it's mm, all mm. and it's almost photorealistic but as near as i can tell that is still hand drawn it is um it's an amazing technical achievement and it's just knock your socks off beautiful also watching i thought man this segment should be used for more animated gifts <laughs> yeah, totally. Because I, yeah, I, a lot of them very it, nicely. Right. I mean, on you know, um, Twitter has the built-in animated GIF stuff, and so does Facebook now, which I think is a great feature. And uh, I, I was just looking up Fantasia, trying different search terms, and it, it's almost all bits from the um, oh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. 
Uh, well, I mean Sorcerer's Apprentice, but the the shit with the the dancing crocodiles and whatever. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, what are some of your favorite uh, segments, Alex? Or do we uh, want to do the segments in order? Maybe? Wait, uh, yeah, let's do the segments in order. Kind of do quick hits on it because we've been thirty minutes already. Um, uh, okay, so I just mentioned the first segment, Takato and Fugue in D minor. Alex, what do you think? Um, I I was gonna say the first. Right up until, I think, the means of expression in the first um, third of the film where it's more abstract and it's more um, it's more just straight expression, I think that's a lot more satisfying than mm. it's when the animation gets more articulated and you have, you know, critters with more human features yeah. and flying Pegasus and, and what have you. I just think it's so much more effective when it has a more abstract feel, like you said, with the lightning bolts and the cello strings and the and the um, the sugar plum fairies, even you know, tracing sure. around the ice. It's incredibly beautiful. And then it didn't lose me, but we'll get to that later. But I think the first few segments and uh, uh, Chowski moments are incredible. That's well said. Uh, speaking of which, let's go on to Nutcracker Suite. Uh, I would argue this is the most well-known piece of music in the film. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. The, the, the Nutcracker Suite has such a huge life outside of its original intended purpose. Yeah, one of my cousins um, studied ballet uh, up until she went to college, and every year the show her troupe would do would be Nutcracker Suite, and she finally got to be the lead uh, one of those mm. years. But every year doing the same show, I cannot imagine that tediousness. But that being said, I mean, it's... What good pieces of music? Of course, when I hear, um, oh, I, I forget this particular movement, but um, I think of the music from Tetris on the Nintendo. Yes. It's different from the arcade version, which is some other Russian film uh, music. But yeah, Tchaikovsky, it's the mushrooms, I, I think, are, are really playful. It, it That's sort of flirting with the Asian stereotype, I think, with the, but that's, I might be sort of stretching it there. Well, this, that segment itself, that movement from the Nutcracker Suite, is simply called the Chinese Dance. And so there, there is a oh, lot of what I, was I at the time okay. referred to as, as Orientalism, this like you know echoing of, of Asian themes uh, and, and you know bringing them into Western music. Um, although it's it's as was mentioned earlier, it's not as racist as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like like you know they because they, they they use you know. They have the mushrooms kind of uh, doing this, uh, doing this little dance, and you know the the mushroom caps are reminiscent of of the uh, the, coolie. the coolie hat, yeah. you know that that stereotypical hat, uh, you know Chinese hat. Uh, I guess the the thing the thing that sticks with me though is that they they do humanize these mushrooms wonderfully, and yet the thing that always sticks with me is as far as like a, a really approaching you know racial caricature goes is that the the cap slits on the underside of the mushroom. They emphasize them in such a way as to to like create like an eye with an epicanthic fold, uh, and and I, that that's kind of that that's the other kind of. I get. I guess it's more it's more subtle than the cut centaur, and that's why this segment is still kept intact. Yeah, like the little legs look like they're wearing you know like a like a cloak or a robe or something almost when they oh yeah and move around. And the other thing I love is that you know the six main mushrooms are so coordinated. But then there's that little baby mushroom that's always trying to keep up. I love that. I love that there's that that character animation in there. Right, really lush uh, character animation. The the third segment, uh, Infantasia, is the most famous segment. 
by far the Sorcerer's Apprentice. As you mm-hmm. mentioned, Thrasher Disney has repurposed this over the years. Uh, I did not realize it was based on a Gotha poem, Der Zaberlerling. Uh, I'm sure I mangled that pronunciation. Um, you get Mickey Mouse and the sorcerer Yen Sid, which I don't, I don't think they say his name in the short, but they've, in Kingdom Hearts... No, he, it, he's simply referred to, I believe, as just the sorcerer in the, the open segment. Right. Um, it, it should be noted that the sorcerer's apprentice was... This segment was spun off into a live-action film starring Nicolas Cage. <laughs> which stay true to the source material backwards it's disney <laughs> wait what if you say yen sid backwards it's disney that's correct yes um, <laughs> i thought you were saying if you say nicholas cage backwards it's disney but perhaps that's also the case uh, <laughs> so how do you feel about the sorcerer's apprentice i mean i think this piece has kind of been talked to death i do like the animation with the brooms and i, I love the mickey mouse's anxiety uh, ratcheting up as the segment goes on. Well, it, it is it is the, the, both the music and the animation dovetail together to tell a perfect story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Characters, conflicts. It 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 is a perfect distillation of everything that Fantasia is trying to be. And and if I can praise the design of the sorcerer. It's it's huge. It's imposing. It has all the things we would sort of expect on a wizard. I mean, it is a Gandalf type, but the th- the thing that I love the most are just those 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 eyes that the sorcerer has. Those eyes that are that are that are too big. They are flat out too big. They break the proportions of the character's face, but in a way that makes the sorcerer seem otherworldly. Those are eyes that have beheld cosmic vistas, and also that. It's very subtle, but if you notice, he has those tiny pupils, but his pupils always have these two pricks of light over them. Al- almost like like the the intensity of his will is like a candle flame that you can see through his eyes. It just makes him wonderfully imposing. You believe he's a sorcerer, even when he's not you know, calling spirits out of that skull. He's a really fascinating character because you don't see too many... Um... Disney features that have such an articulated human character that doesn't mm. have very exaggerated features or, or anything like that. Like, he's a very, um, you know, legitimized-looking person, and he's got a very, you know, um, I guess, imposing facial features, which you don't see a lot of. I mean, you see, you see human characters in Disney films, obviously, but he's a very specific and kind of, you know, menacing-looking one at that. And unlike a lot of Disney, I mean, I, I guess I would not call the sorcerer a villain, but, he, you know, he's not, uh, but you are talking about racism earlier, and now I can't get it off my mind. Um, <laughs> villains in a lot of Disney pieces are ethnic types, right? Or, or not white people. And this guy uh, is, but he's not a bad guy. It's just Mickey Mouse's apprentice done goofed. He, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's what happens. He... He messes around where he shouldn't, causes a big mess, and then Deus yep. S. Machina, the, the boss, comes and, and picks it up. Yep. Well, then we get that nice little nice little stinger. Like we, It's very rare that we see Mickey Mouse get any kind of comeuppance, but we, but we do see Mickey Mouse get a comeuppance in this film when he gets whacked in the butt with the broom as, as, as the stinger. Um, so I had a revelation while watching this segment. Yes. I think this is the only good Mickey Mouse cartoon. <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm huh. serious. I looked, I looked back. Can you even name another Mickey Mouse cartoon? Steamboat Willie. 
And you only know that because of its position in animated history as one of the first fully sound-synced cartoons. Yeah. That's correct. I mean, I'll also say Disney hasn't done a great job of re-releasing their animated shorts. It's only because of the work of Leonard Maltin that we had, uh, I forget what the name of the collection was, but in the tin boxes in the late 90s. Oh, yes. 2000s, right? And those were in a severely limited print run, and they go for quite a lot of money. Um, I think those are as near to complete as you're going to get. But if you want to get that stuff now, I don't think you can. Um, I don't even know if they run that stuff on Disney Channel anymore. Uh, No, they haven't run Disney cartoons on Disney Channel in ages. Yeah, I I was at a bar last night, and ABC was showing some made-for-TV movie about the kids of Disney villains, but then it's like live action. Uh, oh yeah, the descendants. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. On that note, and guess what? Smee has a son that looks that wears a hat just like Smee, except he's young and he doesn't have a beard and doesn't talk with an accent. So I I know I wear my dad's hats all the time. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know one one thing we haven't we we've spoken a bit about the host, but one thing that I, I like with uh, Fantasia is that in the host segments we see the orchestra. In silhouette, and we see the conductor Leopold Stokowski uh, in in silhouette throughout the entire movie. And after the Sorcerer's Apprentice, we we get another one of Disney's technical achievements, where we have Leopold Stokowski interact with an animated Mickey Mouse who comes out and they shake hands, and it's re- it's really wonderfully done. It's and it, it's not quite a cheat that Stokowski's in silhouette, but I'm sure that made the process easier. But it's really great see this this attempt to marry live action and animation which is going to pay off big time later on in song of the south and mary poppins and uh, other films like that yeah i thought that sequence was really cool and um i think back then mickey mickey was definitely more of a class act back then i'll say well it it, that is quite i love that you brought that up alex because uh, even though this came out in 1940 mickey mouse had had been around for uh, a decent amount of time in pop culture i should let me do research as I'm talking. So 1928 is when Steamboat Willie came out. So he'd been out for, you know, 12 years more or less. And um, it is... Already this is a softer, more cuddly version of Mickey Mouse. I mean, in the original cartoons, Mickey Mouse is an asshole and a rapist, among other things. He tortures animals in Steamboat Willie. Everyone forgets that part. Yeah, he's kind of a dick. (laughs) Yeah, he's a dick, yeah. Um, And later on, they sort of made Donald Duck as the asshole supreme, and Mickey Mouse is more of a softie. Um... And, and you already seen the soft the, the softening of Mickey Mouse way back in 1940, which I think is, is pretty interesting. But this is an, an iconic design for Mickey Mouse. And um, also the Sorcerer's Apprentice uh, inspired the Fantasia video game for the Sega Genesis that offended wow. uh, Roy Disney so much, he got it pulled off the market in the United States. Wow. Wow. Because he claimed he claimed in the contract that Disney had to make Genesis video games, Fantasia was off limits because that was an especially dear film for Walt. Wow. Hmm. Which yeah. I I think that's some sort of bullshit. Like when when has Disney cared about the quality of their video games? Yeah, they probably were <laughs> making money off it or something and said, you know, pull that. <laughs> You're right, maybe he just wanted to drum up publicity for a future re-release of a Fantasia on home video. Um, uh-huh. That's me being deeply cynical, but there might be truth. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to. Tr- I'm going to have to track some some video down of that game being played. I really want to see how they would have attempted to turn that into a video game. Uh, it's a platformer. It's um, yeah, I thought it, it might not be. a very good one at that. Uh, but you play as, as Mickey Mouse himself, the titular sorcerer's apprentice. 
On to halfway through, we've got to keep on chugging, kids. Rite of Spring. My favorite segment. Really? Yeah. I, I, well, like, there are five segments in this that are my favorite segment. This is my favorite segment of the favorite segments. It's, it's a piece of music that I love, and I, I, I love how how cosmic it is, how it spans eons. I just I, I love I just love the idea that they take the core idea of the Rites of Spring, which is that it's supposed to be a musical representation of primitive of primitive life, and they say, well let's let's make it really primitive life. Let's start with single celled organisms and end with the dinosaurs. I mean, it, it is woefully scientifically inaccurate, although that is in part because of all the breakthroughs in paleontology that have been made since this came out. Um, also, the dinosaur is that, that menaces all the other dinosaurs isn't a Tyrannosaurus Rex, as they claim in the intro. That's an Allosaurus. Oh. And right. you, can tell by the, you can tell by the number of digits it has on its limbs. Please consider when this was made, Thrasher. They did not know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I do, I do. I can forgive them for showing the dinosaurs dragging their tails. I can for, I I can, I but I guess I can't forgive them for for claiming that the Allosaurus is is a T Rex, if on, only because the eye for detail that Disney has surely someone would have pointed out. Oh hey, a T Rex has two digits, an Allosaur has four. Well, I mean, it, it, this segment is really science fiction because we all know the word dinosaur is not invented until 1841, long after God gave us the Bible. That's why we don't see the word dinosaur in the Bible. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that, that, that piece of uh, that nugget of wisdom comes from the Creationism Museum in Kentucky. Oh, a, a museum I did go to as an anthropological uh, expedition. Is it as amusing as it sounds? Uh, it starts amusing, but the long the longer I was in there, the more frustrating <laughs> the more frustrating it was. Because I guess I guess I guess it, it it comes down to this. I do think faith is is a beautiful thing, and I think there's a there's a lot behind it. Um, you know uh, that being that being said, I feel that that museum does a disservice to both the Bible and to science. Like it gets it gets both wrong on every level. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, I do, I thought of, like, the animation of the dinosaurs. In a way, this segment is a sort of a precursor to Disney's uh, later animated feature, Dinosaur. Yeah, it's kind of an overlooked one, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sort of, you know, with the creation and dinosaurs and meteors. Yeah. Although, ironically, For... the 2000 animated feature, Dino or if it's not 2000, it's pretty close to that, uh, animated feature, Dinosaur, uh, was originally in developed by what fame director? I bet Don uh, uh, was it Don Bluth? No. Was he attached to it? Oh no, no, no he wasn't. Alex. Do you know this one? Windsor McKay. Nope. Paul Verhoeven. Ah. Yeah, and the original version, as I recall, would not would have had no dialogue. That's right. And they repurposed some of those ideas for the commercial in the original RoboCop that features a uh, dinosaur for the car really? or something. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's a real deep cut. It's from the commentary, I think, on RoboCop. But but uh, back back to the rights of spring, though. What do you, what yes. do you all think of this? Act? Um, kind of boring at times. I found my my mind kind of wandering a little bit. I, I like because it's telling the story of the beginning and Earth and so forth. Uh, I almost wish this would have been at closer to the beginning of the film. 
Hmm. Interesting. I think the Rite of Spring sequence is... I think it's pretty neat. I like the dinosaurs. Um, it does kind of drag at certain points, but it does cover a lot of time, obviously. You know, it goes from the beginning of time to the death of the dinosaurs. But... Um, the way it's, uh, it is pretty articulate, and it does it pretty good. The, anim- the animation is really amazing, I think. Oh, sure. Yeah, visually. Yeah. It's it's good. Um, and then after that, we get an intermission, which you don't see in movies anymore. But I, I kind of wish longer movies would have intermissions. Because yeah. as you get some... older, you have to piss more often. And Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's why you finish your drink halfway through, and you just do it in the theater. There you go. I, I never knew uh, the... Uh, you know the the glass that holds your soda can have two features. It's also <laughs> your containment unit. Um, it's recycling. But yeah, the intermission. I I had I had completely forgotten about the intermission segment, and and yet, I it's I found it I found it very charming. Just seeing seeing the musicians just kind of taking a break and noodling around on stage. It really felt very spontaneous. It's a bit yeah. of a jam session going on. It's uh, yeah, it, it's neat. Again, I, I'm not sure if modern... It, it reminds me, in um, in college, I had the fortune of taking a uh, music for motion pictures class. And one of the many clips we saw, it was more of a music theory class, I suppose. Uh, but one of the many clips we saw was uh, of um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And the professor made us sit through the whole 10-minute music opening sequence. Uh-huh. Where it's just a black screen of music is playing. And afterwards, he stopped and said, modern audiences would riot if you did this before a movie. That's true. <laughs> well, actually, speaking of riots, there was a riot at the first performance of The Rites of Spring. Oh, yes, oh, yeah. that's right. It's very controversial, but I don't... Do you know why? Um, uh, I, I, I presume somebody found the, the material objectionable. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and, and as I recall, no, no one was severely injured, but an umbrella was broken and a hat was smashed. Oof, that's rough. That poor but, hat, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, must have been like the hat my father wore, which I continue to wear today. Many monocles were dropped. Uh, <laughs> Jeez. But my, my favorite... For the hat oh, and the umbrella. Oh, but something I, I love, and th- this is... This is this is a segment that, that exists because of the way sound film technology evolved, but I love the bit at the end of the intermission where the host brings out the film soundtrack. Oh, yeah, and he's like, oh, come on, don't be shy now, and makes a little noise and waits for the ripple. Yeah, this, cool. this is when he seen, the host seems to be his most spontaneous. It really, like, it really does feel like he's interacting with something that's truly there in front of him. Yeah. That was I, pretty cool. I, I I find that overly cute. I kind of like the the stiffness of Deems Taylor because it's, um, it, it, I, I like his archaic stiffness. I, I suppose. But what I love how psychedelic this is. I love that they give the soundtrack a character. And oh yeah, yes, and yeah, I just yeah. I love that the soundtrack comes into the frame from where the soundtrack would be on a film print, and that's where it goes back to when it's done. Well, yeah, in in later years, Walt. Disney uh, himself uh, regretted that sound technology at the time of the release of this in 1940 um, was not as advanced as it was because his vision was to have you know what the Who would call quadraphonic sound, mm. you, know, you know, like real surround sound and do really uh, avant-garde weird stuff with where the sound, what speakers the sound was coming out of in different times and link that up to the animation. Um, 
I, I don't think there's been an attempt to do a really aggressive surround mix, but that would be an interesting experiment, I think, with this film. You know, I would love to see this in front of a live orchestra. Oh, man. Yeah, what a good idea. Uh, I wonder... I, I bet they've done that at some point. I'd be surprised if they haven't. Um, so we move on to the Pastoral Symphony by Beethoven with the controversial racist centaur in the original version. Um, this is... I think sort of uh, typical. Uh, what I found more uh, most interesting is how the uh, Greek gods look in this compared to the later Disney feature Hercules, in which they're more stylized. I think, um, <clears throat> again, I think the animation's really good. Uh, it's really great, obviously. But like I was saying earlier, the, um, the Rite of Spring and the pastoral symphony could they kind of lose me because they're because they're almost just a little too precious and a little mm, too uh -huh. I, I do like the design for for bacchus even though it's exactly what you expect bacchus to look like but it's <laughs> right 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 where you can't expect him to have that like you know little wimpy voice you know that um other portly early disney characters had oh the the ranger from those barney bear cartoons yeah exactly oh boy we're going to clean up all this litter Yes, exactly. <laughs> I can't wait to drink my grape juice plus. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I like this segment, although this this segment really kind of feels like dessert. This this probably should have been closer to the end of the movie. Uh, it's which, just so candy-colored yeah. and so gentle, and so you want to see some stuff that doesn't exist in real life, well, here you go. Well, what's weird is narratively, it's it's sort of similar to what we see on Night on Bald Mountain at the end. Um and except it's different in that it's it's gods instead of demons, but you know they're like having a party and then it gets wrecked. That's very true. Um, the, so I guess in that sense, maybe it should have come closer to the beginning than it could have been more like a bookend. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah well said. Yeah. Um, man, now you could just do a fan out of Fantasia, just flipping the order of the clips. <laughs> That'd be lazy, huh? Um, <laughs> Dance of the Hours. Uh, I, I care for this segment the least. Uh, you mentioned stuff being precious in this, Alex. I, I, this one yeah. especially. It seems like the animators are, are having fun. There's there's some gentle humor in this. If, if I was to show an isolated segment to a small child, um, perhaps it would be this one. But right, right. Well, this is this one is the most sort of Warner Brothers-y of all the segments. It, it, feel, mm, it feels much yeah, more like a Warner yeah. Brothers cartoon than a Disney cartoon because you have animals chasing each other. You Physical have some comedy. bad behavior yeah. mixed yeah. with cute behavior. Yep. And everything exquisitely timed to a mu piece of music that is deceptively simple. That's true, yeah. But there is something I find very charming about, about like, massive animals performing delicate ballet movements, particularly the hippos and the elephants. Yeah, like the basic journey does work. It is cute and, and funny and well done and everything. <clears throat> this time around, especially in the segment where the hippos in the middle and surrounded by the alligators in the red cloaks, I was reminded a bit of Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, huh. yeah. Do that. Uh, but yeah, it's... I don't know. I mean, this... Thankfully, all of Fantasia is not like the Stance of the Hour segment. Because it could yeah. have um, yeah. Night on Bald Mountain. Uh, also, oh. and, and then followed up with Ave Maria. Um, 
very, very famous segment uh, in the video game Kingdom Hearts. You fight the demon in this as one of the bosses, and it plays Night on Bald Mountain as the boss music, um, which is a, a nice touch. Uh, good depiction of, in fact, they outright say the devil, right, in the introduction? Yeah, well, I because yeah, because they're saying they're trying with this segment. They're trying to create a contrast between the uh, the profane and the divine, and they re and they really do succeed. I mean, the devil is officially referred to as Chernabog, which is an, an evil spirit from Bald Mountain. But I mean, they I mean, yeah, this might as well be Satan himself. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an amazing sequence. The um, the music and everything. It's it pairs perfectly. The animation's incredible. I love the way the spirits look when they're coming out of the ground. They kind of like they're reminiscent of those old tiny um, what do they call those light those lanterns that have the little designs traced in them. That oh, kind the of magic lanterns, or yeah, yeah, I guess it can. Mm -hmm. magic yeah. yeah, it looks like almost like coming out in that style of um, of light, you know, from the ground. It's really cool looking, and um, and then when you get more close up with the riders and the skeletons and the cloaks and all the spooky stuff. It's, it's really cool. Really wild. It, it's a true phantasmagoria. And I just, I love, I love that they take advantage of the kind of pseudo medieval setting the, the, the image that of, of everything in this segment, it's a truly beautiful segment and, and maybe overall the best in the whole film on many levels. The image that always sticks with me is when you see the hangman's noose in the town square and all those spirits come in and they travel through the loop in the noose. It's just chilling. Yeah, that was I, awesome. I, I like the playfulness of Chernabog as he gathers up demons in his big hand, and the demons, you know, in my mind, seem to consider, oh, what an honor, and he just, like, throws them in the pit and kills them. He's just... Or slams his hand together and changes their form. Just right, yeah, he, he just seems to be showing off, like, look at me, look at what a thing of power I'm at. Uh, I am. And just the... You don't often get... Um, characters in, in Disney animated features that are scary, right? And Chernabog well, is, is, is frightening and evil, and he means business. Oh, yeah, and I remember when I first saw this segment as a kid, I was scared, and yet, unlike most things that scared me as a kid, this was something that I couldn't look away from. It was, oh, yeah, it was just too beautiful in its horror. I would bet cash money that Tim Burton loves this segment. <laughs> yep. So he can do the Night on Bald Mountain movie with Johnny Depp as Chernabog. Ugh. Well, speaking of which, I'll, I'll make a Tim Burton Disney tangent real quick. But um, at one point, he was going to do a live-action Pinocchio for Disney. Huh. And that okay. fell through. And now he's doing a live-action Dumbo, uh, which I think is a dumb idea. I don't know. But Michael Keaton is going to be in it, which I'm somewhat excited for. Okay. I, su Mike I, sus I suspect he'll be good, but the Michael Keaton thing was the one like thing to get excited for. <laughs> Does that mean we're going to get Beetlejuice two because the script's been finished by the um, the dude that wrote? Uh... Oh God damn it! The guy that wrote Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and now he's been doing a lot of screenwriting with Tim Burton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, as long as he goes Hawaiian. The defunct uh, Beetlejuice two script with a with an elephant. That flies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe, maybe that's the secret, right? Dumbo yeah. live action is really code for Beetlejuice two, and it's a it's a crossover. <laughs> I tell you what, I've seen everything. 
when I saw an elephant die. Nice carnival, Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but um, that, back so back to tonight on Bald Mountain. Um, something that I noticed for the first time, watch uh, rewatching it for this show. Uh, so we do, especially at the beginning, we do get to see Leopold Stokowski conducting. Did you notice that some of Chernobog's motions seem to be modeled after the way Leopold Stokowski conducts the symphony? Um, yeah. no, like but that's a smart observation. Yeah, the way he summons with his hands and everything and, mm. you know, everything together, it is very orchestrated. Um... Yeah, I definitely see that connection. That's pretty cool. And and I do like the contrast with with Ave Maria, and I like that. I like that it's it's a real version of Ave Maria. I guess what I mean by that. So I, I listened to a really great interview on NPR many years ago with a woman who specializes in singing Latin songs in movies. Like if you've ever heard seen like a movie where like someone sees heaven and you hear singing in Latin, she is probably the vocalist behind that. And one of the things she talked about was that everyone wants that music in a movie to sound really gentle and soothing, except Latin is full of hard consonants hmm. that she always has to gloss over. And I was very aware of all the hard consonants in Ave Maria uh, in, in this segment. I, I just really, I really like that. I like that they're not changing the music to try to make it sound more ethereal or sacred. They're they're letting it stand on its own. But the version of Ave Maria, and this is in English, is it not? In Fantasia, I thought I thought it was still in Latin. I couldn't tell. I thought I heard English, but I could be wrong. Um... But it, 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 I like how gentle it is compared to the manic sort of uh, animation in the uh, the Night of Bull Mountain segment. I like it. It's a good, it's a well-placed, you know, um, piece that kind of takes the, the chilling sting of Bald Mountain, uh, uh, lightens that blow a little bit, because <laughs> it couldn't just end with Bald Mountain, because it's, you know, just as terrifying now, it's twice as terrifying as I'm sure it was, you know, back in 1940. So, you know, you kind of need that nice little you know, a little end cap there to, to end on a more lighter note, I guess. Yeah, having, having sort of a, a hopeful, gentle end is is very is very good. I think very very Disney in its way. Is true. Is true. Um, we well, you know what it is. It's almost like an e epilogue. It's like the Bald Mountain sequence is the thrilling climax of the movie, but the Ave Maria segment is the epilogue that just ties a yeah. nice little bow on everything. I always felt like it took place in the same, it, like town or something, or backdrop or what have you. Oh, yeah. you know, the, the sun comes up and Ave Maria is there for you. Right. It's 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 a nice. Uh... Nice way to cap off a film. Um, so we've had a, a good detailed discussion about Fantasia here. Uh, Alex, would you recommend this motion picture? I definitely recommend it, 110%. Thrasher? Oh, absolutely. I uh, I do as well. You know, I, I'm not sold in all the segments. I, I certainly agree with Alex that I think the first half is, is better uh, or more interesting than the second half. Um, but there's a lot of iconic segments in this for... A reason, and this is a very rewatchable movie. I think, you know, with the music, you can sit back with a glass of wine and just sort of enjoy it. 
and, and, and take in the visuals. Uh, I regret uh, never having caught this in a theater. I can only imagine um, especially how Night on Bald Mountain would play on the big screen. Oh, it's so good on the big screen. I bet. That <laughs> um, in mind, let's go into our next segment. Uh, pitch a... It's normally pitch a sequel. This time around, we're going to do pitch a segment because uh, the, the idea is, you know, Fantasia has these musical sequences. If you were going to do your new sequence for Fantasia... Uh, what a what piece of music would you use, and what would the animation be? Um, Thrasher. All right. So, so the segment that I would pitch, if if Fantasia was continually re-released with new segments every few years, mine would be based on the Symphony of the Planets by Gustav Holst. Mm. Specifically, mm. it would be based on the opening of that symphony, uh, Mars, the Bringer of War. Uh, which is a very, it's a very wonderful, very sort of a, it's aggressive and yet triumphant at the same time but the images that i want to go with this uh it's not going to be about uh war which is an act of destruction i want to create a contrast so it's going to be about construction it's going to be about creation so the imagery is all going to be a construction site and all the aggressive sounds are going to be the big steam shovels digging the foundation and the riveters driving uh, rivets into pillar or into into girders as they are slammed together to build the to to build the uh the the superstructure of this building and we're we're just going to see it built uh we're, I'm we're going to cut around the human figures we're only going to see the human hands operating the machinery and using the tools and perhaps gesturing to the occasional blueprint uh but the focus is going to be on the machines and the tools and what they're building and it's just going to keep building and building and building until at the end when it's all done, the camera pulls back, and what has been created is sort of the archetypal skyscraper. It's a little bit Empire State Building. It's a little bit uh, Chrysler Building, but it's just this perfect example of mid-20th century high-rise architecture. Pretty neat. And what sort of style visually would it be? Uh, I would kind of... I, I would kind of want it to be halfway between the... Uh, the what we see in Fantasia 2000 with Rhapsody in Blue and half and and like old, old industrial art and with with and I got to admit with a little bit of Soviet propaganda style art thrown in because that's just that's uh, you know it's as 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 propagandistic as that stuff is it's a great way to depict construction and make it look heroic. Yeah, it is. Um. Yeah, I think I think the segment I had in mind, I would use um, sort of highlights from Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. And the concept uh, is a bit of a high concept, a bit strange. Um, so Walt, Walt Disney World has the Swan Hotel with big swans on either end of this pink hotel. It's sort of garish looking. Salmon colored hotel is a better way to put it. Um, and it, it would start with... Uh, the, the opening to this highlight version of, of Swan Lake. Uh, and this is this is loosely based on what happened to Lane Graves, a toddler that was killed by an alligator on uh, at one of the Disney resorts, being dragged into the water. Oh, wow. So it, it would start with a child, inspired by that, a child um, interested in the lake while his family is, is out in the distance, sort of relaxing, having their eye on their kid. An alligator snatches and and kills a child and uh very very bloody uh, of course and uh the music gets quite dark and all of a sudden you can see more alligators are coming out of the lake in front of this uh swan hotel 
to snatch children into the the depths below and the swans uh the swan statues in the hotel come to life and fight the alligators away um all all set to the tune of swan lake and at the end it would end with a dedication uh for lane graves (laughs) Uh, somewhat tasteless interesting (laughs) yes i i gotta say as is as as sort of a grim enjoyment disney theme park death stories are some of the best death stories oh they're fascinating there's not not to mention i mean the disney death stories but also if you've read any of those books of the the scandals behind the scenes of how the workers are treated at the parks and um you know sort of nightmare and what is called like behind the the mouse ears or something there's a few of these books of people speaking off the record about um what happens in the dirty alleyways of disney world (laughs) (laughs) i love it um you know i hear sometimes those costume characters go rogue and escape and they have to send blade runners to bring them back now that's an idea for an animated short alex speaking of which what's your idea for a, a fantasia segment um, let's see. Uh, I would use something, uh, I would use not just, um, Johan Pachelbel's Canon in D major, but Ryan Eno's remix of Pachelbel's Canon in D major animated to the animation of, uh, someone like Hayao Miyazaki, hmm. where it's in a post-atomic bomb Hiroshima-type landscape, but a kind of situation where a loner survivor-type guy is wandering around the rubble and somehow finds camaraderie and redemption amongst other survivors and doing something uh, humanely charitable as a kind of human piece and kind of a slash apology to all the cultural... <laughs> Um, missteps Disney's made over the years with their uh, early animated features. And uh, what the hell, their late animated features do. Quite uh, very interesting. It'll make up for the missteps uh, Disney made with their slight on little people with the the dwarves in Frozen. Not to mention the (laughs) dwarves in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Hmm. Or as the original title was, Snow White and the Seven Midgets. Um, they did not use that. <laughs> no, that I was making a joke. I, I could not tell. That was way too deadpan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's, um, let's move on to our final segment, running a bit late in the show. What you're watching. We talk about a piece of media we've uh, consumed, whether it be... Uh, why am I explaining this segment? It's self-explanatory. Um, Alex, <laughs> what's something you've been watching this past week? Well... It's the Barnes and Noble Criterion half off sale. Oh, that's why, um, son of a bitch. That's why I've been seeing a lot of that stuff posted on Twitter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Alex went and spent a little too much too money. Um, I got the the volume two of Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project. Yeah. Which is really cool. It's got some stuff from, um, Edward Yang and um. I just learned how to pronounce the name. Uh, Peach Tepong Werasetakun. I oh. would have never 
said that before had I not heard Martin Scorsese say it on the Blu-ray. <laughs> um, and some other movies I've watched this only the first one off it. Um, Insang, which is a Filipino film by director Lino Broca, who I'd never heard of before, but it was a really fascinating little flick. Um, I also got uh, Anatomy of a Murder, which is a great Otto Preminger movie about a about a murder. About a, uh, a soldier who shoots the man who raped his wife and then is on trial for it. Jimmy Stewart plays the, you know, that kind of like stereotypical, like, I'm just a homespun country lawyer. That was kind of like from that. Yeah, and that's a really amazing movie. And um, and uh, some uh, Wong Kar Wai. Wong Kar Wai is in the movie for love. I just saw that for the first time since, I don't know, 2006, I think. It's been a while. <laughs> so yeah, been watching a lot of artsy fartsy movies and classics. Uh, I've been watching something not so artsy fartsy. It's a new show uh, series developed by Netflix called Glow. Um, oh yeah, I've only yeah. seen the first, um, oh maybe third of it. Uh, it stars um, Allison Brie from Community Fame and uh, Mark Marin of uh, the WTF podcast Fame. He also had the show on IFC just called Marin. Uh, and Glow, it's it's based on women wrestling in the early 80s, but they sort of invent their own um, history with it, although they make reference to some real figures, and you even see video clips of, like, Hulk Hogan and, and things like that. It's really more about... Um, it's by the same showrunners that do Orange is the New Black, and cool. it's it's not all wrestling. It's sort of half soap opera maybe two-thirds soap opera, one-third wrestling. Uh, a lot of very good licensed 80s music. Um, I especially like a beat at the end of the uh, second episode. Mark Marin. So, I mean, the concept of the show is Mark Marin is this director who did a lot of um, low-budget horror films in the 60s and 70s that have strong social messages that were all, like, flops. I think his, you know, main feature was something like Blood Disco 1 and 2 were his top <laughs> claims to fame, which are all fake movie titles, and they show a clip from one of them, which is pretty funny. Um, and and so he, he gets this opportunity. He's sort of washed up. He gets an opportunity to be the director of this... Uh, th this guy in his 20s, sort of um, trust fund kid, has a lot of money, and he wants to make a, a woman... A version of the WWF and just finances the whole thing, but him and Mark Marin have very differences on how to do it. Meanwhile, the women that do it, a few of them are, are athletes, but most of them are actresses that don't really know what they're auditioning for, and they're having to learn how to wrestle on um, mats that don't have as much, uh, let's say, padding in the reins as on WWF wrestling, so they're more likely to get injured, and there's a lot of physic. The, the women really trained in a pro wrestling camp and you could say uh pro wrestling is is fake and it's certainly not real wrestling but that doesn't mean it doesn't take skill to not just fake getting hit and throw punches and not hit the other guy but also falling correctly and not blowing out your knees or your back or getting a crippling uh addiction to pain pills um so it, it's a very interesting show i loved at the end of an episode how mark Marin, as the director guy looks on two people fighting in the rain and it plays the opening few notes from Stir It Up by Patti LaBelle off the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. Huh. Da, da, wow. da, 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 da. So it, it does some real deep cuts 
with the music. It's um, what one episode I saw. They go to a party at the financier's house, and there's a a robot a la Rocky Four that dispenses cocaine and pills <laughs> from a secret compartment. So it's it, it's more ton in cheek. Orange is the new black. I had a tough time getting into. Um, and among other things, I, I don't like prisons very much. Um, I, I I'm not a big fan of prisons in movies. <laughs> Uh, but also, you saw like, some dark shit when you were in San Quentin. I know that. Uh, that's right. My, um, I, in fact, that's why I have TMJ right now from chewing on those walls to to make a hole to escape. And it is, uh, I I don't know. Orange is the new black. The whole like lesbians in in prison thing. I just thought was real gimmicky, and the acting was over the top. But it worked. But I find this sort of over the top acting. I like that glow is a bit more silly is what I'm getting at. And uh, I'm, I, I'll definitely see it through to the end. I don't know if it's getting a second season or not, but it's been getting uh, pretty good reviews. And, and Mark Maron, uh, for what it's worth, does a good job. He's not the best actor in the world, but he's well cast in this part. He's, he's good at being a beleaguered dick, and that's exactly what he plays. Cool. I've heard good things. I want to check that out. Yeah, and the episodes are only like 30 minutes apiece, which is nice. It's not as big of a time investment. Uh, Thrasher. Uh, so I I decided to delve into some classic uh, 80s cheese. So I ended up watching the Hal Needham spectacle uh, Megaforce. <laughs> I did not know that it was directed by Hal Needham. Oh, yeah. It, it's, like, it's the most Hal Needham movie ever made. <laughs> I mean, Ray Boswick himself. It's... Yeah. Look at that. Yeah, it's directed by Hal Needham. Hal Needham uh, had a lot to do with the screenplay. Yeah, Barry Bostwick. And it was meant to be the start of a franchise, and supposedly there's a treatment for a sequel that unfortunately never got filmed because the movie was something of a flop. But it it really is a wonderful sort of stunt spectacular <laughs> of a movie. Is and, it and, it's, as... and it has a sense yeah. of fun. It has it has a sense of fun, which is why I like it better than a lot of modern attempts at stunt spectaculars, like a lot of the Fast and the Furious movies or the GI Joe films. Ah, oh, this is a Golden Harvest co-production. Oh, fascinating! And you can tell when you watch it. I I, I love this poster. It's um, deeds, not <laughs> words, indeed. Ace yes. Hunter. Is there a more eighties <laughs> hero name? And yeah, and it just has this great, crazy thing that there's this secret, secret military organization, uh, extra national military organization called Megaforce that just has unilateral authority to go into conflict zones and solve the problem, solve problems using motorcycles. <laughs> I really need to see this. Uh, in retrospect, how Needham described the film, uh, kind of a version of James Bond done with a hell of a lot of less budget, no Roger Moore, but it was high tech, good right wing film. And I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, also, a bit of trivia, the movie has no credited costume designer, as all the clothes were designed by the toy company Mattel. Um, yeah, they, they, they with the success of Star Wars and people wanting that sweet, sweet action figure money, Michelle did have a bit of a hand in this movie and produced a lot of the film's vehicles, but when it flopped, sadly, they didn't, uh, as far as I know, didn't recoup their investment. Trey Parker uh, and Matt Stone are, are fans of this film, and um, apparently, if you look really close in the Team America, they make a, a lot of references to it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Just, I, I didn't even know this movie existed. The, the poster oh, just... It's, is it like a Flash yeah, Gordon vibe? I'm kind of getting that from the... 
sort of. I mean, everything is everything is cheesy and heightened, and like Megaforce possesses a preposterous level of technology and funding. <laughs> uh, and, and and the wonderful thing about like the movie doesn't have time to really dwell on any of those questions. So as soon as they arrive, arise, they are into the next scene. How neat! Among other things, can shoot the hell out of a car chase sequence. Oh, he does. He does. And and all the vehicles are great. Lots of awesome practical effects. Uh, it also is written like a lot of the characters have so much backstory, including like the relationship between Ace Hunter and the movie's main antagonist. It's as if this is the second or third film in a series. <laughs> this looks and it's just it's just it's just a wonderful a wonderfully hubristic attempt at launching a franchise that is still very very fun. Uh, Bostwick smartly commented. Uh, he decided to have a, to be bearded in the film to develop a particular look. That way, if I want to do other pictures, I can just shave off my beard to look totally different. Very um, smart. <laughs> much like Harrison right Ford's choice. character in uh, the Tommy Lee Jones movie. God, I'm stupid. Um, Fugitive. Fugitive, thank you. Yeah. Oh, and one one crazy thing though that always stands out to me. So so everyone in Megaforce is like is like an expert in their field from like a different nation. So on their uniform they have like a Megaforce patch, and then below it they have a patch for the nation that they're from. And the like and uh, Ace Hunter's right hand man, who's of course is nicknamed Tex, his his fl the flag on his uniform is a Confederate flag. Which is the, well, first and foremost, that's not a different country anymore. And second, Texas was never part of the Confederacy. <laughs> so why the hell does he have that patch? But again, it's one of those things that the movie doesn't have time to dwell on. They got to get to the next set piece. <laughs> this looks amazing. And, I want to see this. And there's, and there's also this like expository like theme song for Megaforce that plays over the credits, which are played over like footage of different action scenes from the movie. It's This is a tremendously fun film, and if you don't think you can handle its level of, of gleeful cheese, there is a Rift Tracks version available, which I think is streaming on Amazon Prime right now. You know, this is the real shame. It, um, it only has a Blu-ray release uh, in Japan, from what I can see, and in the United States it has a bare-bone DVD release. This is the kind of movie that um, Shout Factory should jump on and do a special yeah. edition. It needs something Criterion level loaded with special features. Like I, I, I would love to see some like behind the scenes stuff, promotional stuff, interviews with people who have been influenced by this film. Yeah, I'm not just saying this because they've reviewed a lot of their product, but um, Shout Factory does a great job at taking cult films and um, doing good special features. Uh, and in, in case in, in some cases when they're cult films that aren't beloved, they just release a double feature disc and so at least you have two interesting films. But yeah, they need to jump on Megaforce. I don't know how hard it is to get the rights for it. But if um Yeah, if we can get movies like uh Evil Bond versus Ginger Dead Man out there, surely <laughs> Which we I've can seen. Get, yeah, surely we can get a re release of Megaforce. This would be fun to see it in see in a movie theater in a midnight screening. This is just begging for it. So, Alex, oh, yeah. what, Alex, what sort of uh, articles do you have coming out? Oh, um, well, we're doing the weekly Criterion predictions as usual. Actually, I've been speaking of Shout Factory. I've been trying to revise the very sparsely occurring Shout Factory predictions. Um, Did they make the announcement so, yet? Other new titles? 
Yeah. Um, if, okay. And puts me back on the drawing board because they're releasing uh, Joe Dante's Matinee, which is going to be mm. awesome. I love that. One of my favorites. And that was going to be the next Shout Factory column. So I guess I have to figure out another one that might be. I'm pulling up the list, too. Nice. They're doing uh, Darkman 2 and Darkman 3, the the direct video sequels. Um, Yeah, we should try and get review copies or something. Uh, Now, do you think those will include the pilot for the Darkman TV series that was never uh, picked up? I never realized they even did a pilot. Um, That's possible. The pilot is pretty much just a remake of the first film, sure. but there there was a pilot made for a TV series. Uh, it looks like they're doing some Sam, uh, speaking of Darkman, doing some Sam Raimi stuff with uh, Misery and Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, Drag Me to Hell. Oh, I love that. Uh, <laughs> Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yep. Yeah, it, before Screen Factory made their announcement, everyone on Twitter was going crazy about it, uh, or all the movie fans at least. My predictions were they were going to do uh, special versions of Child's Play 2 and 3. Hmm. Because yeah, that I, would... I believe they did Child's Play 1 as a under their uh, Scream Factory label. Um, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? I cut you off, Alex. Oh, I, I, I lost it. I, I forgot. Um, oh, I think I was just going to say, yeah, that would make sense if, for them to do the, the Child's Play sequels there. Especially Child's Play 3 is a very strange movie. Oh, it's so weird. With the military the mil- camp, it's like a, <laughs> it's like Full Metal Jacket for children, but uh, no, yeah, it's it's a very weird movie. And it also came out nine months after Child's Play two <laughs> in theaters, which is <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, that's like, but I guess what, like Matrix, uh, what Matrix Reloaded and Revelations came out really in the same year or something right like they yeah filmed back to back and i think released within six months of each other yeah. which negatively affected the gross of the third one um because i think people just had matrix fatigue oh yeah especially after the second one that was such a loaded movie not no pun intended right it's so weird that in a lot of ways the highlight of that franchise was the animatrix yeah <laughs> mm-hmm <laughs> I, you know, Animatrix I always associate with, uh, it was my first time smoking pot and my first time getting drunk. Um, uh. So both of those happening at the same time all the Animatrix was going on make it pretty special to me. I can't remember what segment I vomited during, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the Animatrix has aged better, too, because um, I went to rewatch the Matrix series when you guys were doing it on the sequel cast. Yeah. I just remember thinking that oh my god, like, every other peripheral action movie had just done all of the bullet time effects to death and then some for for years to follow. So then just watching The Matrix, you know, years afterwards, it was just kind of like, ugh, more of this, please, no thank you. <laughs> it It's a very influential film, and I'm a bit um, surprised that the Wachowskis haven't gone back to The Matrix well, considering their follow-ups have been real kind of uh, belly flops. Although I I understand, uh, I wouldn't mind watching the Netflix series they worked on with J. Michael Straczynski. Um, huh. oh, what, what the hell is that called? Uh, the Sense8? Yeah, Sense8, thank you. Ah. Um, uh, yeah. and the Wachowskis did... were involved with a, a very... Oh, never mind, they weren't involved with this film. I take that back. I was going to talk about Perfume, but excellent picture. 
Anyway, I'll shut up. We need to wrap up this show and move on to recording next week's show on Fantasia <laughs> 2000. Yes, listeners, we're recording this back-to-back. Um, belly to belly. Yep, oh, so yeah. where can people catch you on Twitter, Alex? Oh, yeah, I'm at crabnebula1914. All right. I'm uh, at M-A-T-W-B-T. The show is at SequelCast2, Thrasher. I am at Internet Mayor, as in the political office, not the horse. <laughs> our first sequel cast too this is matt and this is thrasher this is alex saying congratulations to you mickey <laughs> oh, uh, oh boy oh, oh. you know hey, listen Brian, I, i'm Shecky... Allison after just one day hey mickey i'm uh, i'm shecky spielberg here lodging in oh. uh that you ever heard I, 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 I wrote material for your cousin, Ricky Mouse. Well, we, we don't talk about him much, but uh, well, what did you write for him? I, I wrote him a picture, you know, Fantasia. It was supposed to be a big hit. I, I was working on something, and I decided to uh, to do it. Uh, called it, uh, a, called it Asya. A-S-S <laughs> space Y-A. So it kind of sounds like Fantasia if you say it fast. Uh, 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 it'd be a lot of, and it'd be a Ricky Mouse's animated butt wiggling back and forth, reuse the same animation over and over again to pieces of uh, classical music like chopsticks. You know, I believe they, they turned that into the world's first three hour Luke animated GIF. That may be Mikey Mouse, but I got a bone to pick with you. I wrote another spec script, a sequel to Fantasia. It was called. Fantasia 2001, a musical odyssey through the art of musical expression, a.k.a. Fantasia 2, the re-quickening. And you never got back to me. Well, I never got back to me because I fell asleep reading the title. Oh, it was pretty long. Yeah, yeah. And since the AKA Requickening, which already infringed on another project of uh, of mine that I, I can't talk about right now because, uh, you know, it's pretty inappropriate. But anyway... The, the the requickening that that's that's quite interesting, Chucky. So, with the, with the um, does it have any ties to the the Highlander series, or is this? Well, Highlander ripped me off, and uh, that's what nobody talks about. Everyone likes this lawnmower guy and this Highlander guy and uh, this dark <laughs> fellow with a man and the hat and the face and the and the cloaks. But uh, nobody ever acknowledges the requickening from old Uncle Shecky, who uh, you know is always always living in the shadow of uh, of baby brother Steve. Uh, nobody talks about that no more. Which uh, you know, it, it pains me to this day. But what are you gonna do? Are you gonna are you gonna you know piss and moan about it all day? Or are you gonna write another script? You gotta get back and write another script. It's all about the moving pictures that don't get made. If you know what I mean. That's right. If uh, if pictures didn't have motion, what would we have indeed? Uh, so I have books. <laughs> yes, yes, you'd have books. And, and speaking of what's uh, Shecky, I've heard. That uh, you're coming out with a sort of a, a, a tell-all tale, uh, hitting bookstores this uh, fall. Well, my original biography was called "I Got My Head Stuck in a Chair and I Tried to Eat a Taco, and then the taco got stuck in my nose, and then I sneezed repeatedly, making a very messy floor, and then my dog ate it. It licked all the the, the messy taco and it slipped on the floor. But uh, like I learned from my friend Mikey Mouse, uh, he fell asleep through the title of my Fantasia sequel. So I decided to call it A Shecky Divided Amongst Himself, A Tale of Shecky Spielberg. 
it's a very, very, very candid look at my uh, life living in the shadow of uh, Steven Spielberg. Well, as I understand it, the publisher cut the two chapters that dealt with your disastrous marriage to Mia Farrow. Oh, Mia. Well, she's a dear. She's a darling. I, I got nothing but great things to say about Mia, but don't ever marry her. Uh, I get together with Frank Sinatra. Oh, we used to get together all the time and, and, and exchange war stories. Uh, Mia's apparently, uh, she's, she's hell on wheels to be around. Um, if, you ever, if you ever bring up the Guadalcanal, or um, the production of futon mattress frames. Uh, I just you got to you got to put on your catcher's mitt and your helmet and your hockey stick because you're going to be dodging things like like lamps and and Ming bosses and uh, radiator caps and all that. She goes she goes crazy. Uh, a very difficult woman, but she's a, got a good heart deep down. You know, it, it was uh, it was it was trouble, but there was there's a lot of good times too. Never never forget the good times. I guess that's one way you could sum up my book. Uh, never forget the good times. I make that the title. And who can forget your um, late 80s uh, knockoff of, of your younger brother, Stevie, uh, Empire of the Moons Over Miami? Oh, well, that was a that was a real passion project of mine. Um, you know, he had some, you know, he had some stupid kid running around the old Luftwaffe and the Germans and the, 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 the war, all that. No, no, it was uh, Empire over, <clears throat> over Miami. That was a. Uh, it was a real passionate project, and uh, I think it, it, it really looked into the tumult of, uh, uh, you know, what the kids were going through, you know. It's all about children and family and, and, and being, a, being a good mensch, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, Stevie had Empire of the Sun. He had that little Christian, uh, what have you, um, chum, bale, whatever, uh, Christy chum. Uh, but, uh, you know, my pictures, I, I think a lot more heartfelt. You, you feel the heart, not like you know, you, you're grabbing a pulsating ventricle, but uh, you feel the hot, you know, the, the goodness inside you. Come right. On. It doesn't have as many uh, close up of, of the Nike shoes, uh, n- not to mention because you filmed a different country, you're able to go back to the uh, the righteous uh, child labor laws that were that what we had pre Twilight Zone, the movie. Well, you know, you got to really, um, you know. When it comes to child labor, I always feel like it's, uh, you know, it might sound a little cruel, but you gotta, you gotta toughen kids up. Kids are too weak these days. Um, what, what, what Landis happened there, you know, uh, the helicopter or what have you, that, that was, that was, that was a terrible thing. But, um, after all, gotta, after all, does a teacher pay their students? No, of course not. Thank you exactly. so much, Shecky, for your time. Always a pleasure. Matt and Trasha. Yeah, that uh, Shecky, we haven't heard from him in a while. That was that was a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, yeah. He, he pops in all the time, you know. He does. He do, um, in fact, that's why his uh, third uh, ex-wife had to get a restraining order against him. So next week we're going to talk about Fantasia 2000. Get some more episodes of Sequel Cast Two. Uh, leave reviews for us on iTunes. You can listen to us also on Stitcher and the website. Uh, follow us, uh, like us on Facebook. Just look up Sequel Cast Two, and you can get all the episodes SequelCast2.podbean.com. Good night.
SequelCast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Find other great film and TV podcasts at BattleshipPretension.com. The theme song to SequelCast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the C. Listen to his music at MarkWithTheSea.com. You can also listen to SequelCast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to Stitcher.com and search for SequelCast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet.